1: Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 22 Isabelle of France, the daughter of the carbuncle. Richard's grief over the loss of his first wife, Anne of Bohemia, cannot be understated. He was devoted to his wife, his constant companion for 12 years of a reign where he had very few people that he could rely on. That said, he did not wait long before seeking a new bride. He was still young and the issue of succession had not yet been settled. Like I said last time, there is a possibility that Richard chose a life of celibacy rather than his own infertility foisting that choice upon him. But the speed of his second marriage does suggest that perhaps securing the succession was on his mind. Of course, his motives could have been purely diplomatic as well, we just don't know. Now, you may have noticed that this episode is a little shorter than you are perhaps used to. That is because, spoiler alert, this marriage is not going to last very long. Richard's nobles are about to see to that. That said, this does afford us an opportunity. Normally, to squeeze everything in, I tend to rush past certain aspects, such as the complex negotiations leading up to a marriage, so that we can get to the good stuff. However, this Queen's reign, as we will see, is unlike any other that we have seen so far, so there will be a lot more focus on the lead-up to the marriage than normal. Treat it as a case study in how a royal marriage is arranged, and the different motivations involved. Trust me, it's worth a closer look. First, let's take a look at what was going on in Europe at the death of Anna Bohemia in 1394. On the Foreign Front, England was at peace with France. While this period is all lumped together by history textbooks as being part of the quote-unquote Hundred Years' War, the fact is that it wasn't one war, more a series of wars all fought over the same subject over the period of 116 years, from 1337 to 1453. There were two significant periods of peace within this war. The first was during the reign of Edward III, and lasted from 1360 to 1369, which we discussed in Philip of Hainaut's episode. The second is happening right now. It started in 1389 when Richard II signed a three-year truce with the French King Charles VI, and this would last until the reign of Henry V. Now this peace was popular with the common people of England, who were tired of the incessant taxation required to support the war, but it was deeply unpopular with the sword nobility, most notably, of course, the Lords Appellant, and it led to them briefly taking over the kingdom in the late 1380s to prevent the French truce. Richard, as I discussed last time, was not a martial king spending his reign off on campaign in France to secure the French crown for himself held no interest to him. Unlike his nobles, he did not hark after glory and foreign treasure. So, we're now in this period of peace, which means that suddenly the French marriage market was open again. Yes, the two countries were on opposite sides of the Western schism, but marriage was too important a diplomatic tool to be blocked by that. Both Charles and Richard were keen to secure their truce, and so, as soon was considered proper... Charles suggested that Richard marry into his family, specifically his daughter Isabel. Now for this, we are blessed with one of the most extraordinary documents from the Middle Ages, the Letter to King Richard, sent by Philip de Maizière. Now, the term letter is rather misleading, as this is monstrously long. When I went to research this, I expected a quote in a book, but no, the letter is the book, the English translation taking up 72 pages. Now, I'm going to quote this in detail, because this piece of French propaganda is one of the great treaties on medieval royal marriages, plus it's hilarious. Philippe de Maizière was a French knight, who had had a long and colourful career, serving in the French army against England and the Ottoman Turks, becoming the Chancellor of Cyprus, before finally becoming a tutor and then advisor to the new French king, Charles VI. This letter, written in 1395, was designed to persuade Richard that this marriage, and by extension peace with France, was going to be just great, and equally that any doubts that he might have over the match were nothing to be worried about. Now, he does this through the most tortured metaphor in the history of, well, language, using the idea that Richard was a diamond. Don't ask. I wrote an explanation, but it took up three paragraphs, and even then it didn't get to the rub of the thing. Philippe also uses the idea that Charles was a carbuncle, a kind of red gemstone. Again, don't ask. This is how Philippe discusses the marriage in detail. Quote... Most worthy kings of France and England, so that the love you have for one another may be perpetuated, it is my longing that the rich diamond through the holy sacrament of marriage should become son to the shining carbuncle, and so shut the mouths of all those who ask for the five-footed sheep, that is, war, which might result from the other hazardous marriage already discussed in its proper place. This holy alliance is the most speedy way to silence everyone. Thus the two kings would be like father and son, dwelling in harmony in one temple of God, in one love, and in a single will. This other marriage was a suggestion that Richard once again marry internally to the daughter of one of his opponents, one who would seek renewed war with France. Next, Philippe goes on to discuss one of the difficulties in this match, Isabel's age. Now, we've had a lot of young queens on this show. Indeed, there was a stretch back in the 13th century where every queen seemed to be married at the minimum age of 12. Well... Richard was proposing to break that record because, in 1395, Isabel was only six, possibly five. So, how could this possibly be legal? Well, we are in a slight grey area here, but essentially the couple could theoretically be married and Isabel could become queen, but they wouldn't live together as man and wife until she reached that magical age of 12, where they could finally make the marriage official, i.e. consummated. A medieval marriage was not considered legitimate without consummation, Indeed, that was one of the most common avenues for annulment, but of course, marriages were meant for reasons that often couldn't wait until one or both of the parties were twelve. Thus, you could get all the diplomatic advantage early, and then get the important things like heirs later. This would mean a very complex marriage contract, but we'll get to all that. Philippe, of course, knew the objections to the match, and so sought to ease the king's mind. He first uses the idea that the question of whether a king could or could not have children was not up to him, it was up to God. Quote, "...if anyone should argue that the daughter of the carbuncle is over young, and that it is expedient that the diamond should take to wife a woman from whom he could soon hope to have children, for the comfort of himself and his loyal subjects, to this it may be replied, "...bear in mind the will and favour of God." That is to say, that although the diamond, on the advice of his subjects, may marry a lady, good, beautiful, and of the right age, yet, to have issue, i.e. kids, as quickly as human beings desire, does not fall within the power of man's free will, for this gift of God to have children, and worthy ones, is reserved to the decree of divine providence alone. So here, he is essentially saying, what's all the rush here? God alone decides when you will be blessed with children, and he will reward you in his own good time. Why not wait for the quality kids you will have with Isabel, then take a chance with some other floozy who may not bear you kids anyway? As a side note, I am not sure how well Richard would have taken this, given that his beloved first wife Anne did not bear him children. Philippe's inference here is that any barren woman is spiritually suspect, not something Richard would have appreciated given the strength of his love for his dead wife. Oblivious of the offence that he'd just caused, Philippe then goes on to my favourite part of the letter, where he describes the advantages of marrying a girl when she is very young, rather than someone older. To do this, he breaks out another of his beloved tortured metaphors. Quote, It is well known that if a man wishes to have the greatest benefit from the use of a horse in battle, or elsewhere, it is necessary that that horse should have been well-trained when young, and become obedient to the commands of the bridle and to other guidance. And, further, it is recognised that the man who has trained the horse will get more profit from it than anyone else. But wait, there's more. The elephant is one of the largest beasts in the world and one of the fiercest, and yet this same elephant carrying on his back a wooden tower holding thirty soldiers can be controlled by one unarmed man whom he obeys at all times. How wonderful! This elephant was thus trained while young to obey this one man alone to the amazement of all, and it is beyond the power of man to train an elephant once he is full grown. This rough comparison may be suitably applied to both men and women. Who usually retain the bent and instruction given them in their young, giving them in their young age into their maturity, as is the case with camels. Wow. Okay, so there is a lot to unpack here. Philippe's references to women as sort of feral beasts that must be taught and trained to obey their male masters is an incredibly telling indictment of the role that women were expected to play in late 14th century society. You can tell the fear that Philippe has of women, this dangerous other that must be tamed to create this ideal Stepford wife that all men desired. Men, according to Philippe, were supposed to dominate their wives in a sort of master-slave dynamic, not the sort of partnership dynamic that we saw in earlier queens. Next, and on a similar theme, he finishes off his animal examples by attacking Isabel's mother. Now let us turn to the training of women, and especially of young women of high estate, the proverb says that daughters, in good habits or bad, copy their mothers. the ways that they have learned from their mother in childhood they usually keep when grown up, and it is no easy matter to change the habits to which they are inclined by long use. I'll come back to this question about Isabel's mother in a bit because first, I want to finish off Philip's comments on the marriage of Richard and Isabel. Quote, It may be said on reflection that it would be easier to entrust the guard of a great flock of poultry to Mr Fox and expect him to do his duty without attacking them than it would be to change the nature and habits of certain young women accustomed from youth up to follow their own will and inclinations. The training of young girls, I don't say all, but some, is no less effective, if truth be told, than the training of elephants." And so the final flourish, the argument that the best way to obtain a good, obedient wife is to brainwash them from an early age. Who says that marriages in the Middle Ages were devoid of romance? That reference to Isabel's mother brings us neatly on to her parents, as they are two very interesting people. Her father was Charles VI of France, who was, in the words of the time, mad. He had come to the throne at the age of 11 and had obtained his full majority ten years later, but not long after, he showed signs of being extremely mentally unbalanced. In 1392, in one of his psychotic fits, he killed a number of his knights while on the road. In later attacks, he would completely forget who he was or become violent again. In later years, he would become convinced that he was made of glass and insisted on having iron rods sewn through his clothes so as to prevent him from shattering. Now, from 600 years in the future, it is tempting to just find this amusing, but of course to the people around him, this was profoundly upsetting and destabilising. The French monarchy had just come through a crisis after the capture of its king during the Hundred Years' War, and now it had a king who was semi-permanently incapacitated. At this time, a number of his nobles jockeyed for position, but one person who rose to a position of prominence was the French queen, Isabella of Bavaria. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail on this because it isn't strictly relevant, but since she is about to become the mother of two different English queens, it is worth giving Isabella a decent introduction. Her career as Queen of France can be compared to another Isabella, the wife of Edward II. She is also considered by many to be a significant inspiration behind George R. R. Martin's character in A Song of Ice and Fire, Cersei Lannister, which, if you've read the books or seen the show Game of Thrones, says it all. She became regent after the madness of her husband became apparent, and took the reins of government, at least in name, whenever the king was incapacitated. Now, historians differ on just...
0: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives
1: you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which...
0: Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: ...how harshly we should view Isabella, but certainly contemporaries castigate her as a spendthrift, debauched and incompetent ruler who turned the French court into an orgy of sex and greed. She was also accused of sleeping with her brother, louis Duke of Orleans, who was in a massive power struggle with the Burgundians, leading to the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War. Basically, no one has good words to say about Isabella at this time, which is why Philippe de Maizière makes it very clear about the advantages of taking young Isabel away from her mother's clutches as quickly as possible. Now, I'm not going to go deeply into the extent to which this is an exaggeration or outright fabrication, But let's remember that throughout history, women who sought to take the same amount of power as a man are frequently thought of as being morally wrong and often accused of lurid sexual deviance. It is amazing how often they are accused of some form of incest. See the examples of Lucrezia Borgia and Anne Boleyn, among others. What it means for our story, though, is that for poor young Isabel, her home life must have been very troubled. So, I've been dancing around actually talking about the girl who would become queen, so, let's introduce her now. Isabel of France, who is also known often as Isabel or Isabella of Valois, it depends on which historian you listen to, was born in 1389 in Paris. I've already introduced her parents, which would normally be what I would talk about next, so let's talk about her upbringing. I've already mentioned how unstable it would have been, what with her father's insanity and all the power struggles, but we know from French royal records that her mother did take some care for her children's education. There are records for the purchasing of toys, books, and clothes, and so it seems that she was a fairly normally involved mother for her time. By the age of six, though, Isabel had to pack up her toy box and all those books, because it was time to set sail for England. The negotiations for the marriage were, as you might imagine, complicated. The main issue, though, was money. After having had to pay for his first wife, and seeing how unpopular that had been, Richard was determined to get top dollar for Isabel. He initially demanded two million francs, but the French said, uh, how about no? So they negotiated Richard's envoys down to 800,000 francs with a 300,000 franc down payment. Okay, so far so good, but now we get into the clauses. The first thing inserted was a fine of three million francs if Charles backed out of the deal. Charles also had to pay the costs of getting Isabel to Calais, where the nuptials would take place. Next they planned for the worst. If Isabel should die before the age of 13, not a ridiculous worry given that she would be moving to a strange new place at such a young age, then Richard would get to marry another daughter of Charles and keep half the dowry. If Richard should die, unlikely given his age but possible, Isabel would get 500,000 francs plus a large maintenance grant from England. Finally, provision had to be made for the fact that they were below the canonical age of marriage, and so though they might be getting married right now, they could not be canonically wed until she reached the age of 12. If Isabel rejected Richard at that age, then the whole dowry was Richard's. If Richard rejected Isabel, then he must send double the dowry back in compensation, and that is not to mention, of course, the principal attraction of the match. When the contract was signed on the ninth of March, thirteen ninety-six, they also agreed to a twenty-eight-year-long truce. The negotiations for the marriage had taken place between envoys, of course, and so the first time that Richard and Charles met was at Calais, as was usual at these international summits. It was all a big contest of who had the biggest tent, the flashiest weapons, the best knights, give the most expensive gifts, etc. They were married at the Church of saint Nicholas on All Saints Day, and soon after, the seven-year-old Queen of England set sail to her new home. It would not be a journey without incident, however, as some of the ships in the Royal Party were wrecked on their journey across the Channel. Then, when they arrived in London, so many people had gathered to catch a glimpse of the young Queen that many were killed in a crush and stampede. In such a superstitious time, these were not good omens. Isabel then went to the Tower, and God only knows what she was thinking right then. If she understood much of what was happening, then it must have been incredibly confusing. Have I mentioned yet that she was only seven? The next day, 4th of January 1397, she rode in procession with 20 ladies leading 20 knights as companions, and was crowned queen, as was traditional, at Westminster Abbey the next day though one can only imagine how comical it must have been to see the great crown jewels of the kingdom on their head and in the hands of a seven-year-old. I'm surprised that they could get her even just to sit still. Now, the coronation was not totally popular, though it had nothing to do with Isabel the girl, but Isabel the daughter of the King of France. Peace with France was not something considered desirable by large sections of the English nobility, who considered war with England's enemy as being the only natural course of action. But anyway... She was now Queen, but only as long as her husband remained in power, and that was about to become a problem. She was placed into the care of the Duchesses of Gloucester and Lancaster, and sent to Windsor Castle with a handful of attendants and a French governess, and from there she was about to watch her husband's regime burn. Now, like last time, with the first part of Richard's reign in the episode about Anne of Bohemia, I will be brief here, as it isn't strictly relevant to the story, But, since it is a key call to the Wars of the Roses, which is most decidedly part of our later story, it is worth talking about the last three years of Richard's reign. In 1397, the same year that he married Isabel, he heard intelligence of a plot hatched by the Duke of Gloucester, his uncle, and the Earl of Arundel, to depose him and run the country as regents. Apparently, he was visiting his wife Isabel at the time, and immediately set out to greet his uncle. He set a trap for him, and rode with him to London, whereupon he was captured by a group of loyal knights, taken to Calais and killed. Now, Gloucester had been a leading light in the Lord's Appellant grouping that had caused Richard so much trouble in the early part of his reign, and Gloucester's allies saw this as the beginning of Richard's revenge. Remember how Edward II had taken revenge on the murderers of Piers Gaveston? Well, the Lord's Appellant were fearing that history was repeating itself. Their suspicions were confirmed when another of their number, the Earl of Warwick, was arrested and would have been executed if he had not offered all his goods in exchange for his life. Arundel, though, another appellant, was executed for his part in the alleged plot. His revenge now almost complete, Richard promoted five new men to duchies, including his cousin Henry Bolingbroke, the son of John of Gaunt, who became Duke of Hereford. This made Bolingbroke a rich man, and of course, as the heir to the Duchy of Lancaster, he was in line for a huge inheritance. At this time, Henry was a loyal magnate to Richard, despite being a former lord appellant, but that was about to change. He went to the king to tell him that the Duke of Norfolk was now plotting against him as well, but in this Richard saw only pound signs. Norfolk and Bolingbroke were the only two remaining lords-appellant, and Norfolk, of course, denied it all, and so Richard decreed that the matter could only be solved through single combat. Richard let the two come out in all their finery, get themselves all g up, and even let them gallop towards each other on their massive steeds, before calling a halt proceedings and stated that they were both in fact banished and all their lands forfeited to, guess who, the king. With this fell swoop, he had now dealt with all of the Lord's Appellant, who were now all dead or exiled. It may be noticed at this point that Richard had become somewhat mad with power and massively paranoid. He was turning England into the kind of absolutist monarchy that had been specifically outlawed by Magna Carta and other legal documents limiting the power of the king, and was even enacting policies that had been specifically banned by Magna Carta. This was tyranny of a kind that even Edward II and Dispenser had not managed, and it did not end there. He got every law that Parliament had passed during the reign of the Lord's Appellant repealed, and then created a committee of crony lords and knights to essentially replace Parliament, allowing him to essentially rule by decree. What was Isabel doing while all this was happening? Well, nothing really. She was growing up, being educated by her governess Lady de Cousy and preparing for life as a full-time queen when she came of age. By all accounts, though he was becoming one of England's worst ever kings, Richard was a fairly decent husband. He visited her regularly at Windsor and Eltham Castles, where she spent almost all her time, and by all accounts she was fairly devoted to him, who must have been the only strong male role model in her life so far. The last time she saw her husband was at Windsor, just before he left to go on campaign in Ireland. Apparently, he picked her up, kissed her, and promised that he would soon send for her and she could visit the Emerald Isle. However, while Richard was in Ireland, Henry Bolingbroke came back and now he was at the head of an enormous army in the high tens of thousands. Richard could barely muster any loyal troops when he rushed back. If this seems like the invasion of Isabella and Mortimer, well, that's because Henry modelled his invasion on hers. He even gained the backing of the French government, which Isabella had not managed to do. Richard was deposed and imprisoned, and Henry had himself crowned as Henry IV. Now, the deposition of her husband left Isabel in a very tricky position, and one that as a nine-year-old she could hardly have been expected to fully comprehend. Henry quickly moved her out of her quarters at Windsor to Sunning in Berkshire, which was the home of one of Henry's allies. Everyone knew that control of the Queen was vital, as she could become a huge rallying figure for supporters of Richard, and it was not long before they made a play for the Queen. The earls of Kent and Salisbury, along with other loyal knights and nobles, raised an army in London, and the two earls also paid a visit to the Queen to gain her support. According to the 16th-century writer John Hayward, Isabel was jubilant. Quote, She defaced King Henry's arms and plucked away his cognizance from his servants that attended upon her, and, having in somewhat satisfied her womanish anger with this harmless spite, she and the lords departed together, First to Wallingford, and from thence to Abingdon, stirring the people on the way to take armour and rise in aid of King Richard. Sadly for Isabel and Richard, the revolt failed, and the two earls were killed, and soon too did Richard, who was murdered behind closed doors, just as Edward the Second had been. Isabel's little rebellion, though, did show just what kind of dynamite she could be if she fell into the wrong hands, and so Henry forbade her from returning to France, according to Jean Foissart. The Englishman would in no wise deliver her, but said she should stay in England upon her dowry, and that, though she had lost her husband, they would provide for her another, that should be fair, young, and gentle, with whom she would be better pleased than with Richard, for he was old, and this should be the Prince of Wales, eldest son to King Henry. Isabel, however, refused to marry the Prince of Wales, who would, ironically, go on to marry Isabel's sister, Catherine, but that is a story for another time. Eventually, however, Henry could not go on to find the King of France forever, and he eventually let her return to her homeland, six years after she had departed it in the arms of her husband Richard. Charles did not manage to clock his dowry money back, but she was allowed to keep her jewels, so that was at least something. Once back at home, she returned to life as a princess of France, and did in fact remarry. In 1406, she married her first cousin Charles, but she would die only a year later, giving birth to her daughter Joan at the age of just 19, a sad end to a life in which she had never really been allowed to live. So, that is Isabel. We've had a few women so far who have had uneventful times as Queen, but Isabel really takes the biscuit. Her relationship with Richard was really more of a father-daughter one than a husband-wife one, and we'll just skip over just how incredibly creepy that is. It's too harsh to compare her to any of the other queens in our list, as her time as queen took place while her age was in single figures. She was not able to perform any of the normal activities of queenship, but the high diplomacy involved in negotiating her marriage does make her at least a very interesting case study. Next time, we move into the 15th century and discuss the first queen to marry into the Lancastrian royal house, Joanna of Navarre, a woman whose life was considerably longer and far more eventful than that of Isabel.